Good morning again. So nice to see all of you and to sit with you. It always feels like a small miracle whenever we get to sit together. Even though we, some of us, when I say that, I mean kind of me, have a, a challenging relationship with Zazen. It's, it's still this really amazing thing that we get to come and, and be together in, a, in this unspoken, intimate way. So thank you very much for your presence and your practice and your sasana. Uh, so today I wanted to talk about five hindrances. So these are um, things that typically arise in a practitioner's life. We can, some practitioners think of them as obstacles. And uh, Stephen Batchelor has a book, I think Practicing with the Devil, I think is the name of it. And in, and in it, he talks about the origins of the word devil is someone who places an obstacle on the path. So it's not like it's malicious. I think it's just a, a hindrance, something that slows us down or prevents us from continuing. So in our tradition, they're considered obstacles uh, to development and practice and just obstacles to, to meditation or obstacles in meditation. So there are five. And the, the hindrances, uh, the name is uh, Nivarana. So we have Nirvana, Nirvana, we have Nivarana, right? Uh, so Nivarana, the, the five are uh, sense desires, ill will or malice, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and doubt. Doubt. So sense desire uh, includes the ones that we, uh, the ones that we are quite intimate with, so sight, Sound, smell, taste, and physical feeling. So whenever we talk about sensations in the Western sense, we usually use the word touch as one of the senses. But that doesn't come that doesn't come really come close because if we have a sensation of hunger or of an upset stomach, that is definitely a physical sensation, but it's not touch. Right? So it's it's very much physical feeling. And the senses in some schools of um, Buddhism can include manas or mind. So these are the these are the six ways that we interact with the world as, as well as the rest of the skandhas. Um, so sense desire. Right? This is one that we often have uh, a lot of challenge with because if we think of a particular destination that we have a fondness for or a, or a, uh, a dish that tastes particularly good or something that's pleasing to the smell or to the, to the hearing, uh, there's this element of greed kind of jumps in or develops. So in, a, in that way, we're kind of not, we're, 
not too different from single cell organisms because they'll anything that they like they'll grab onto and anything that's a threat they'll they'll back off from so in, in that sense we are not terribly advanced in, in that way So our instinct is to grab on, to grab on to um, sense desire, sense pleasures. Or another word is craving, sense, sense craving. Uh, there's a, there's a, a um, video clip about, it's, it's a very short, very accurate cartoon about uh, addiction. And it shows I think it's black and white, and it just shows this little cartoon bird walking along. Have you seen this? Yeah. This cartoon bird is walking along, and it comes across this little blob on the ground. And he looks at it, and he eats it, and he begins flying. And he's just blissed out of his mind. You know? And then he comes down to the ground, comes walking a little bit farther, finds another one, takes that, and he takes off flying again. Just not as high. And he comes back down to the ground. He's walking along. And this continues for a while. And what you notice over a period of time, two things happen. One is the, uh, the, the, uh, the bliss periods, the, the height at which he's flying is lower and lower in altitude. And his body language on the ground is more and more beaten down every time he comes back down to earth. So like these sense desires, because they do give us happiness, uh, it actually does, it, you know, it does become an addiction of sorts. It may not be what we conventionally think of in the West as an addiction. And our sense of self can be an addiction. Most of us are quite attached to that. Um, but you know, if we have, if we have an, an addiction for like a gelato that you can only get in a specific place in Rome, you know, that's going to kind of cause some difficulties, right? Or for Garcia's brisket tacos. You go and you find that the line is 45 minutes long. There's a lot of, a lot of suffering involved with that. <laughs> so the second one, uh, ill will or malice. Malice is like such a heavy... Such a heavy word. You know? I mean, it feels like there's very little space in there for movement whenever we talk about malice. So that can include rejection, which means either rejecting people or being rejected. You know? For or against. Uh, resentments and bitterness. And, and uh, one of the characteristics of, of malice or ill will is that it, it obviously uh, hinders ease or contentment. We can't really be content when we're feeling malicious or hatred or ill will. And, uh, and in the in American literature, this is typically personified in the book of Moby Dick, right? 
both the white whale and Ahab. So Ahab wants to push it all off on Moby Dick, on the white whale, but it's equally about his malice as well, too. And um, another, a more contemp uh, contemporaneous version of that is um, a greatly underappreciated novel, even though it won the Pulitzer, uh, The King Mutiny, because the, the ill will that is generated toward Captain Quig by the crew prohibits them from helping him when he asks for it, when he needs it, when he needs it most, when his, when his human uh, failings are most uh, apparent. And when he actually when he makes himself vulnerable, the ill will of the crew prevents that from happening. So the third one is Sloth and Torpor. This, this, that is, uh, the characteristics are heaviness of body and dullness of mind. Uh, so, so it can really, over a period of time, it can pull us towards inertia of body and depression. Keep us from moving, right? Just moving at all in any way. Uh, I, I would also posit that we can include complacency in this as well, too. That whenever we become complacent, we are not being challenged anymore. We're just kind of taking things for granted. So no effort is required. There's a story that uh, Katagiri Roshi was giving a talk and said uh, that morning when they were sitting Zazen, this thought came into his head where he said, is this all you're going to do for the rest of your life? Is sit, sit, sit here and do Zazen? And he was just kind of, you know, kind of laughed at himself and, and, and waved it off. So uh, it's, um, it's, it's good when something like that pops up because we get to actually look at, oh yes, this is my intent to come and sit Zazen. It's a thought. I don't have to take it seriously. I don't have to buy into it. I don't have to feed it. Um, but I can just, oh, okay, there you are. I see you. One teacher at San Francisco Zen Center uh, tells how uh, after many years of practice, she was sitting one morning and recognized that she had been cruising for a number of years and just kind of, just kind of going along and sitting, sitting Zazen. I don't remember how long it had been going on. I don't remember her saying. But uh, I said, oh, yes. We can't assume that we know what we're doing whenever we come in to sit down. Or we can't assume that we know what we're going to face. So we have to be, be ready. Be ready to, to meet ourselves and to meet the world. And the last, last one is restlessness and worry. Oh, the fourth one is not the last one. Um, and that is the inability to calm the mind. It also hinders, hinders mental ease. And the way that we often talk about it in Zen is what's called monkey mind. Um, I think uh, 
when, when I was practicing at Austin Zen Center, we were still at the old location. We bought the new location, and I was the, the, the maintenance person for it. So we were sitting, session. we had a weekend session, and, uh, and I remember kind of going crazy because I was thinking, I was ticking off this, all the list of things I had to do because we were going to be moving into the new space soon, and there was a lot of work that had to happen. And here I was, taking myself from that work to sit Zaza for a week. You know, so I was robbing the others in center of the time to do the work. So for all of the day, uh, it was basically all I could do to come back to the seat at the end of a period of walking meditation and not, uh, and not go to the other place and start painting or doing repairs. It's, uh, uh, a monkey with ADHD or something like that. You know? So I really, really got to be intimate with that over the course of a day, and which is really, uh, in hindsight, I think, wow, what a gift. You know, I've known many people to bolt because they were so restless that they couldn't sit still. And it's a hard thing to sit it to sit with it and to be present with it. And the last one uh, is doubt. doubt. So this is not the normal doubt, right? The I don't know doubt that we talk about sin. This is um, a corrosive doubt. So it's often listed as a <clears throat> lack of conviction, trust, or uh, sustained consideration. So basically just the inability to, to, to bring ourselves in and sit. And the, <coughs> excuse me, the analogy uh, that's often given for doubt is being, in a, being lost in a desert without any landmarks. So being completely directionless. And um, there's a saying in West Texas on the Yano Estacado of the Staked Plains, that uh, that particular part of Texas is 85% uh, sky and 15% grassland. So, uh, and, uh, old timers used to get lost pretty, pretty easily uh, out there. So thankfully there are some antidotes. The Buddha wouldn't have been called a good doctor if he didn't have antidotes for the things that uh, the things that he talked about that causes suffering, difficulties. So, for sense desire, so for our addiction to sense pleasures, we get to um, we get to meditate on on permanence. Right. So this. This uh, craving for this gelato arises, and it, we feel that gravitational pull to the extent that you know we're thinking, "Oh, I'm gonna get home, start pricing up flights, you know, look on Airbnb to try to 
find a place to stay while I'm there, close to the Tawada place. So I can go there as much as I can. So we become intimate with that, aware of it, and then watch how that fades. In the in the old days, they don't do it as much anymore. But in the old days, they used to the Buddha used to send folks to the charnel grounds to meditate on corpses and the impermanence of the body. Ill will and malice. One of the antidotes is loving kindness, practicing loving kindness. Uh, and you've heard me talk about this ad nauseum, so I'm sorry you're hearing it again. But you know, it's one of those things that we fake it till we make it. And even if we can do loving kindness without feeling it. You know, and that's actually even more important than doing it when we do feel it. Because we're laying groundwork for that to happen. We can also just feel the pain of our misanthropy in that moment. It just that that uh, bitter taste of self-righteousness. Uh, it's quite painful. Wow, this is you know, it's like the old saying of eating uh, poison and expecting the other person to die. Right? It's, it's like the personification of that. And you're like, oh, I'm just taking in poison by indulging in this. <clears throat> Uh, another way is the word respect in the literal sense. So literally it means to look again. Respect means to look again. So we can look again at our assumptions about the person. Okay, there's a, um, I remember reading a piece by um, a teacher who was getting on a plane and someone sat next to him and he just felt this Intense, very intense physical, just hatred of the person for no reason, for no reason at all. So, uh, being a good practitioner, he just kind of he kept it to himself, <laughs> you know, didn't, didn't share it. <laughs> but he actually allowed himself to become kind of curious and kind of looked out of the corner of his eye and saw the person's hand on the armrest, and he focused on the, the fingernail of the little finger and said, do I really hate that fingernail? And really began examining this, and then extended it to like, the first knuckle, and then the whole finger, and then the hand. And then by the time he, by the time the flight was over, it was just all completely gone. But he allowed himself to become curious about about his assumptions about the person, about the malice that he felt towards this person. We don't do it here so much, um, but at Tassahara, there's a, a the monastery I practiced at. There's a practice that you do when you whenever you are meeting someone on the path, you stop and you bow to each other. So it doesn't matter what your relationship is with the person. If it's someone you have a lot of deep affection and connection with, or if it's someone that you have a really difficult time with, you stop and you bow. You acknowledge each other. And that is such a wonderful way of just 
subverting, subverting malice or anger. Um, and it does even more than that. Because whenever we bow, and, and, and this is not something that's really common in our Western culture at all, but whenever we bow, we're completely making ourselves vulnerable in that moment. We're giving up our stiff neck, first of all, our pride and bowing, but we're also exposing the back of our neck to someone. Even if it's just a short bow like this, there's still this vulnerability that happens. <clears throat> there's a lot of vulnerability just in acknowledging someone, no matter what difficulties that we have with someone. <clears throat> it's wonderful practice. You know, and uh, and I want to also say that living in the monastery is very difficult because we're going to come up against ourselves over and over and over again. We also are, we also recognize that what we're doing is we're, we're with malice and ill will that we are projecting some aspect of ourselves onto other people. We're actually seeing us. Uh, the writer and I, Nin said, we also see things as they are. We see things as we are. And it's very much the same thing with any of these projections. This is really about the me show. It's not about the them show. So sloth and torpor is uh, the antidote to arouse energy. And in Sazen, the way that's often taught, when we're sitting in meditation, we start feeling sleepy, is we can do one of two things. One is we can raise our eyes level with the wall until the sleepiness subsides. And some folks will often recommend uh, focusing your energy on your third eye there until the sleepiness is passed. And sometimes when we're sitting in we're just sleepy Buddhists. And then, uh, and then to recognize the impermanence of that as well, too. Particularly after a meal. There's a lot of lurching going on after, <laughs> after meals a lot of times. But even that, you know, that Sometimes that can extend for several periods of sazen during the session, and sometimes go through many different states, energetic states, in one period of sazen. Restlessness, uh, so quieting the mind, is, is really uh, what we're talking about here. Um, so we, we have to learn to develop contentment. And uh, there was a a Sinead O'Connor song that really puzzled people for a long time in uh, the late 80s, early 90s. The title of the song was, I Do Not Want What I Do Not Have. And people didn't understand it at the time. And after we've been practicing for a while, they go, oh, that makes perfect sense. You know, I'm content with what I have. What was the title? I Do Not Want What I Do Not Have. Um, so developing the contentment with where we are. And what we have, or if we part of developing contentment, saying, "Oh yes, I have a difficult relationship with X, Y, or Z, and I'm working on it." That's actually a form of contentment. And then doubt, the classic antidote is studying sutras, because the, the doubt is often like doubt in the teachings or doubt in the Buddha. If we look really closely, that. A lot of times what we'll see is we doubt ourselves. We're not actually doubting practice. We're actually doubting ourselves. 
So one of the things I like to do is to use doubt to counter doubt in a homeopathic kind of way. So whenever we have doubt, well, is that really true? And we can really investigate it and just call it into question and, and look at it. Because we have this inherent assumption to believe what shows up in, in the uh, internal screen. Wait a minute, is that really true? And we can do that whether we believe something positive or believe something negative as well, too. Is that really true? But it's more important to do it whenever we're experiencing doubt so that we can continue our practice. And one of the last things that the Buddha said before he died in the Paravanata Sutra. He said, if you have questions or difficulties or doubts, talk to other practitioners. So this, this American myth of the individual doesn't do us any good. Right? That we have. We really, you know, this there is a reason that the Sangha is the third treasure. We really need each other. We really need each other to check things out with and to find out. You know, this is my experience. What's yours like? And then, uh, and then the word commitment with doubt. Commitment is actually a really important thing to come in to sit when we're feeling doubtful about the practice or about ourselves or about our motivations. And digging into the Latin again, commitment is to come as with, mitere is to send, to send with. So if our intention is to come and sit zazen, we're going to send our body with that intention. Right? So, so we, uh, we make the, the commitment to come twice a week. We say, oh, yes, I have to remember that. Which is to be a disciple, a disciple of, of zazen, which is you know, the one thing to be a student of zazen. Discipline, that's the, the word. Um, so we send our body with our mind, or our mind with our body. Whenever we sit down, our body's there. We need to send our mind along with that as well. And in the insight tradition, they use the rain. You've heard Galen talk about the rain. Um, uh, technique, which is to recognize, to, and this is for working specifically with doubt, to recognize that we are experiencing doubt to accept, to accept that it's present, that we are experiencing it, to investigate it. So to using that doubt to, to, uh, uh, to work with that doubt, to overcome that doubt. And most importantly, is non-identification with it. Right? How many times have we thought, oh, I'm a, I'm a good person because I did X, I'm a bad person because I thought Y. That there's this inherent cogito uh, ergo sum, right? I think, therefore, I am. So if that's the case, whatever shows up on our head, we are, according to Descartes. Right? But that's not really true. It's just passing phenomena. Mm -hmm. We could have a, 
we could have a, a passing thought about a hard-boiled egg, and that does not make us hard-boiled egg. So um, it can be really helpful just to say, oh, that, that is a thought. It is literally a thought that's showing up. It doesn't require my participation or my buying it. Mizuchi Roshi says it's a secretion, it's a brain secretion, mm-hmm. yeah, which can be a really helpful way of looking at it. <clears throat> so these, these hindrances These hindrances, um, classically, they're put forth as uh, obstacles in meditation and spiritual practice. But it's actually more than that. We're going to take the Mahayana view of saving all beings, including ourselves. So everything is practice. Then these are also hindrances in our life. The hindrances for having a harmonious life with other people, with ourselves, with any relationship that we have. Um, I realize I want to back up to one thing, and that is about doubt. Um, One of the ways that, that doubt is Really, can be really corrosive is in our relationships. I've talked with many people over the years who um, aren't in very healthy relationships, whether it is a, a work, a romantic, personal, dharmic relationship with someone. And what happens is this element of doubt begins to creep in and they begin to question themselves. They begin to think, it's like, you know, um, well, this is a really good teaching opportunity for me, a really good learning opportunity for me. And uh, we have to be very careful. It's very important to be very careful with this, right? that, we don't, that we don't doubt um, that experience in that way. A really good example is um, some, uh, the Dalai Lama was meeting with um, a, a group whose teacher was misbehaving. And there was some sexual impropriety going on. And various members of the group were saying, you know what? I think we really met on this. Like, I'm really practicing with this. I'm really working on developing compassion and, and forgiveness around this. And the Dalai Lama said, No, this has got to stop. I mean, he, I mean, he put up and bellowed it. <laughs> you know. So I know, because uh, I've talked to the people who were very unhealthy romantic relationships and their practitioners and were doubting themselves and using the Dharma as an inappropriate means to stay in an uh, unhealthy relationship. 
And so we have to be super careful about that. That we're not just we're not fooling ourselves. So this is very important. This is very important. Not to, not to bring a bunch of heaviness down on the, you know, toward the end of the talk, but it's, uh, you know, trust the body. Whatever the body, what the body response is, listen to that. You know, don't talk yourself out of doing something that is ultimately healthy, even though you may have a very difficult relationship with it, you know, a difficult time with it. Um, so I, I did want to say, that's, a, that's an important point that I didn't know. I feel, let me rephrase it. It's not empirically important, but I, I feel, as this practitioner, it's really important not to undermine ourselves uh, in that way, and our well-being in that way. So the, the real beauty of the hindrances is we're going to get to know them quite well because we're human. They just show up over and over and over again. You know? Like a uh, hydra. Yeah. Right? Cut off one and then another grows back. But it looks different. It usually looks different. So it takes us a while to recognize. Recognize. Um, and with all of this, you know, it's like, don't take it too seriously. You know? We don't have to we don't have to bear down and to bull our way through through these difficult situations. It's actually really important to approach all of this with a with a light spirit, you know, with a really spacious mind, and give space. The more we tighten up on it, the more suffering it causes causes us. <clears throat> so, um, let's see if there's any questions or feedback or thoughts or actually your own experience with, with the hindrances. Mm-hmm.